Hello and welcome to another episode of Brave UX. I'm Brendan Jarvis, Managing Founder of The Space In Between, the home of New Zealand's only specialist evaluated UX research practice and world-class UX lab, enabling brave teams across the globe to de-risk product design and equally brave leaders to shape and scale design culture. You can find out a little bit more about that at thespaceinbetween.co.nz. Here on Brave UX, though, it's my job to help you to put the pieces of the product puzzle together. I do that by unpacking the stories, learnings, and expert advice of world-class UX design and product management professionals. My guest today is Julia Dabari. Julia is a lead UX designer at AgentSync, where she's busy designing software to make the insurance company ecosystem more effective and efficient. Before joining AgentSync, Julia worked as a freelance design program manager where she focused on improving onboarding and education. Her clients included the Interaction Design Foundation, LinkedIn, and the Hired Guns. Julia's career in UX began at the dawn of the millennia, where she started as an interaction designer for a Dutch company called Internovation. Since then, she has worked across startups, enterprise, and agency, including at Adobe, MRM Worldwide, Razorfish, Sapient, and Dell. One of Julia's great passions is design education. Most recently, she has worked at the Flatiron School, where she was the lead design educator. Across the years, Julia has also been a design educator at Product School, UC Berkeley Extension, Design Assembly, and GrowthX Academy. Another of Julia's great passions is helping other UX people to grow and develop in their careers, something that I'm about to explore with her in a little more detail. So on that note, it's my pleasure to have Julia here with me today for this conversation on Brave UX. Julia, welcome to the show. Thank you, Brendan. It's an honor to be here. And I just realized I'm a little intimidated since your last episode was with Don Norman. <laughs> <laughs> No need to worry. No need to worry. You have every right to be here. And I've been looking forward to having this conversation with you, Julia, very much so. And something that I noticed about you when I was preparing for today and that I wanted to acknowledge is the tremendous amount of time and energy that you've invested into volunteering in this field. So just to give people a tiny taste of the scale of your investment, you're currently the design operations manager for the Copenhagen Institute of Interaction Design, a design specialist and project lead for the DIA Design Guild, and a member of the Envision Design Leadership Forum. And previously, you've been a mentor for Hexagon UX, the Interaction Design Foundation, and ADP List, where you've actually clocked up more than a thousand minutes of mentoring. Now, I could go on and on and on. I think there's actually 19 volunteer positions in terms of mentoring that you've you've occupied during your career. But I was really curious, where do you find the time to do all of this on top of your day job? And what gives you the energy to commit so much to it? Yeah, thank you so much. That's a really good question, Brendan. Um, so as far as time is, I definitely, I'm one of those people who's really a big fan of time blocking my calendar. So like, for example, I'm insanely busy at work right now. Like, you know, we all have those, like, I'm one person managing eight products, but I quote unquote clock out at 4 p.m. my time two days a week and block off two to three hours in the evenings for mentoring. So no matter how busy I am, I do try and 
schedule time and like it's blocked on my work calendar so people don't schedule it's blocked on my personal calendar um it's just something that i've always been really passionate about that i try and make time for that blocking out and that ability to switch contexts and stay in whatever the context is that you need to be in whether that's work or whether that's mentoring that discipline to do that well that strikes me that you must have a lot of discipline to do that is this something that you have to work hard to protect the boundaries around or is this something that is now just so natural and easy for you that you don't even really consider it as a as a challenge to maintain those boundaries yeah it's interesting I don't know if I've thought about it in quite that way just because I've always been someone who's blocked my time like no one told me that's the way you do it I mean I did this all the way back in like high school maybe even earlier as far as that goes and then sorry just adding a little extra context like in high school I actually took every single extracurricular activity the school offered like literally when I graduated a 4.8 GPA um, because I took so many extra classes Um, and that was just the same thing as just like managing my time. And I'm also very organized. Um, but as far as like you were talking about, so I'm good at blocking that time, but I do struggle sometimes with, you know, someone will be like, oh, please, please. Can I just like have this one meeting or just do this one thing? And honestly, it sometimes depends on my mood. Sometimes I'll be like, okay. And then other times I'll be like, no, like I purposely block that off and, It's something I've had to learn. Definitely as I was younger, I was way more of a quote unquote pushover and would, you know, automatically just say yes to whatever someone said. But we all grow, hopefully. (laughs) Yeah, well, tell me about that, because saying no to people is, is actually way harder to do than we give credit for. Because there's things at risk there, right? There's, well, there's a perceived risk of offending someone by not giving them what they've asked for. What enabled you to shift Or what was it that changed for you where you decided that, no, I actually have to tell people no, albeit maybe you're not doing it all the time. But what was it that gave you the confidence to start saying no to people? Yeah, it's definitely actually two things, I guess, sort of like a mind shift. And um, one is, is actually sort of a UX kind of thing. It's not just saying no, but like, no, what other times or what else can we do? Not just like, no, but like, here are some other options, sort of the Mm -hmm. yes and thing that we Mm -hmm. learned in UX. So that was one thing. And then the other was, you know, not needing some outside validation of like, will this person not like me anymore because I said no. And I'm not saying I can always successful at that, but just sort of realizing does my self-worth rely so much on what this other person thinks about me? I, I want to go back to something you said earlier, which was that you've been blocking this time out in your life as far back as high school, possibly even further. That is really interesting. And I was wondering about that, whether or not there was some role modeling that you had adopted or just how you came to approach the things that you do with such deliberate action. And you clearly do a lot of things, which has, which which requires almost probably by definition for you to focus how you spend your time. So what can, what was it? if anything, that you can recall that enabled you or provoked you to adopt that way of working? Uh, Yeah, so it's sort of funny. Both my parents are very flaky, to put it mildly, like no organization, like all over the place. And they're also both self-employed. So at or 
add that on top. And then my mom is one of those like habitually late people. Like if it, she had to drive me to school, I was dreading it because I would be like an hour <laughs> late to school if she drove me. And I mean, I did all those tricks you hear about of like setting the clocks, you know, an hour ahead so she <laughs> wouldn't like make me late and stuff. And I would literally like have times where I'd go to school and they'd be like, Julia, you're late. And it's like embarrassing to be like, um, my mom made me late. Like it wasn't anything I did. Yeah, I'm not the adult here. You know, I'm not the one yeah. driving the car. Um, so I think my organization and that kind of stuff actually grew out in a response of that was my rebellion. Mm. Was like, how organized can I be when I see like how not organized my parents were, and you know, like every flaky thing you can think about a person, my parents were like that. <laughs> I mentioned to you before we hit record, I'd had a conversation which has been published now with Maud Alpacini, uh, who we actually explored a little bit into his background with and his childhood. And this, uh, th- what you're touching on there, how we try and influence children or parents try and influence children, but you never really know just what they're going to pick up from what, what you try and uh, lead them to. And in this case, you know, like Maud was telling me, his parents were very... Um, introverted people didn't have a wonderful social life and Moro looked at that and didn't want that for himself and so he's the life of the party he hosts people over at his house all of the time he thoroughly loves it uh, but it was through experiencing the, the sort of absence of that as a child that led to him developing that uh, appreciation for people and that want to have them more and more in his life. That's so similar to what you're suggesting there with your need to manage time came from obviously observing and living through uh, being a child under your parents' roof and feeling some of the frustrations with the lateness and the disorganization. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. Julia, I want to come back to your work in mentoring and clearly pers- personal development of others is something that you you really, really value. And there's a uh, there's actually a quote on your website, and it's on your website's homepage, and it's by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, and or Goethe as he's more commonly known, and it says, "Treat people as if they were what they ought to be, and you help them to become what they are capable of being." Now that quote didn't end up there by accident. In fact, I think it's the only thing that's written on your homepage. So why did you choose this particular quote to greet people when they arrive on your website? Yeah, I mean, it's definitely a philosophy that I strongly believe in. And it's definitely the way I go into my mentoring and teaching and educational relationships. And I guess it's also something as I think about it, and I'm currently at a new job that I try and go into with like, any relationship is like, I'm not a naturally optimistic person, but I, I realize that. And so I try and go into it with like, maybe not optimism. I don't feel if that's quite the right word, but like, this person's trying, I'm trying, we're both trying. Let's, you know, try the best together. Thinking that quote's quite, there's quite a lot of depth to that quote. And clearly it's something that you connect with. And and I was curious, who treated you as if you were what you ought to be? Wouldn't it be horrible to say I can't think of a single person? (laughs) Mm, That's interesting. It's interesting. So where does does your appreciation for this way of being in the world, where does it come from? Is it from 
no one treating you in that way. Yeah, that's exactly a lot of my things in my life and my personality are shaped actually by like the opposite of what I experience. And like, I don't want other people to do that. So like another example, um, I was just talking to someone earlier about this today. I seem to have a knack for picking managers that are like too busy, don't have time. Like I even had one job where I never actually ever met my manager like at all in two years, like not even an email, like nothing. Like they were just a name on an org chart, just people always too busy, you know? So I learned the hard way that things that we tell juniors now, but like no one's going to care about your career, but you. And so then when I have been a manager, I am like, I want to grow you. I want to like spend time and like, I want to make you the best possible employee or whatever you want. Like if you want to leave, I'll support you. And I I guess it's that kind of thing too, is like, I want to be the manager I wish I had basically. You recently posted about your predicament on LinkedIn and I sense a little bit of frustration in this and it's to do with not being in a position where you're able to devote as much time and energy and attention to helping others grow. You know, things are super, super busy. So for someone who has previously said, which is on your website, my personal mission is to help others realize and use their potential to experience success. As a leader, I truly care about the development of my team members and they respect me for that. And this post that I mentioned on LinkedIn was suggesting that you just don't have that time. And so I was wondering, is it that your personal mission has changed? Is there, is there, has there been a shift for you there? Or is it just the circumstance that you currently find yourself in? No, it's just the circumstance that I currently find myself in. I mean, I don't know, I guess I don't know if this is an oversharing. Basically, I came into my current job And, you know, I asked as many questions as I thought I could during the interview process. And I did think the interview process that I had at my current job was the best I've ever had in my entire career. And so I was like super positive, but I was told that my job would be to build out a team and a function within this company. I love doing things like that. And I was like, all right. And like, I really liked every single person I met and everything. And then I guess right before I wrote that post, being a little emotional here on that LinkedIn, um, I was told that that has been deprioritized and not as important for the company anymore. Um, And I just sort of got to suck it up, work with what I have. It's funny because before this, so this all happened in like the last two weeks before that, like my boss, like literally my second week is like, okay, what do you want for a team? Like, you know, tools, like resources, headcount, like, just tell me your ideal, like whatever you want. And I kept going, are you sure? Like, you know, we're not like a big, huge tech company. Like, I know we don't have unlimited resources. He's like, no, just go for it. And I was like, really? And like, and he's like, like, I think he was getting annoyed that I kept going, are you sure? And I was like, all right, you said it. Like I said, are you sure? Like four times. And then like things didn't work out. Um, so I think I was just reacting to that disappointment a little, obviously on social media, (laughs) um, you know, like letting it color my thoughts. And so I was really excited to like build out a team and, 
you know, it's not that it's never going to happen, but, you know, it's definitely on pause for a significant amount of time. And I understand the company's reasons and like why that is so. And for me, it was more just like the constant buildup of like, you can get whatever you want. And like, if they would have just been like, we don't know, or just like ask for what you want and like, we'll see what happens. And I would be like, okay, you know, we don't know what's happening with the economy right now. But like, I just felt like built up a lot. And then now I'm like disappointed. And so what's interesting actually is, you know, I wrote that post. I got a lot of people like, oh my God, are you okay? Are you okay? And I'm like, okay, maybe I need to tone my own voice down on social media. (laughs) But is like, then what happens though is like now I'll be like, okay, then if I can't build a team at work, then I'm going to go do more mentoring. So I'll probably block off more time on my calendar to offer more mentoring sessions. Since I can't get that at work, then I will find it outside of work. Yeah, it's great to hear that you're still able to scratch that itch, so to speak, and contribute to others' careers in that way. It just might not be in the day-to-day. For people in design that are managing others and are finding it difficult to find that time or make that time to do that. Uh, This is actually something that you've touched on before previously and you've said about this. When I was in UX design and this is when you were working as a recruiter and I was a manager and I was hiring, I was much more open to mentoring whoever the new person on the team was and I've noticed that a lot of hiring managers are just too busy and don't have the time. So we still have the same amount of time in the day. We've got 24 hours. That hasn't changed. So where did all the time that we may have used to have had to do mentoring, where did that go? Yeah, I mean, I guess, you know, also relating to that LinkedIn post you were just referring to about me not saying I have enough time and like why is, um, you know, just being, being, or actually are you talking about like within your day-to-day job or you're talking outside of day-to-day jobs? You take it wherever you like. I mean, look at it holistically. If you you like, that's totally fine. Okay. um, So in one way, I don't... How about this? I don't think the time has gone away, to answer your question. But like for my specific example is um, I now have to prioritize different things because of the company decisions that like I won't be getting um, a team. Um, So now I need to prioritize like specific products and like releases and stuff that I thought other people were going to support. When I was a manager, I just like I've been talking about sort of my thread, this whole thing is I blocked out specific time to manage and mentor. And I guess that's something else that maybe I'm not super clear about when I block out time. I block out times for even things that you might think of as like, oh, that's just a to do on my task list. For example, when I was a recruiter, I would literally block out an hour just to send email updates to people of like, you didn't get the role or like whatever. Like I block out like so many things. Like if I'm need to do something it's not a to-do list a to-do list is easy to just skip and like it's a binary yes or no no you block out time to do the thing on the to-do list and so you and i are on the same page i think if if i could share my calendar with you right now i think you you would hopefully find a a kindred spirit as far as blocking things out i totally hear what hear you what you're saying about blocking out sending people emails as well i did that yesterday uh, and it took me an hour and a half I think I blocked out an hour. I'm always surprised at how long it takes to reply to emails well. 
Yes, me too. Me too. And the same thing. Yeah. And so like, you know, just add to what you and I both just said, like when I worked in agency or multiple agencies, you have to like track your time, you know, and like fill out all the stuff. And I would literally block out, you know, one hour to do admin tasks. And then I would list what those specific tasks are in the calendar invite or whatever it was for myself so that I was like, yes, I'm going to do these things. Like I'm going to sit there in our stupid old fashioned time tracking machine and like block out time for every project I worked on. So are you suggesting then that hiring managers, UX hiring managers, design hiring managers who are not able to find the time to mentor their teams is because they're not able to appropriately manage the boundaries of their own work days so they can fit that in? I mean, I guess I sort of do feel like that. Like, I feel awful saying that. And I mean, everyone's different and, you know, but I mean, I guess I look at work like, and I like also at work, like basically everybody in my close immediate team is like really overworked. And I mean, this like product managers and like engineers that I'm working with and stuff. And so I can see everybody's calendar, like uh, pretty common, I guess, at workplaces, you know, and like I can it's funny, like I'll look at people and there's like one person I work with, like I get along with everyone really well. I really like everyone. And I can see they actually do the same thing. I can see them blocking off their calendar and they have like 10 direct reports and like all this stuff. And like they have everything blocked out and like when they're going to do once. And then I look at my manager, he has nothing blocked out. Like it's just a random collection of like a million meetings and I guess that's the other thing is what happens is if you don't block time out, then it gets eaten up by more and more meetings. But like, for example, I had a meeting that got scheduled for this morning at like 6 a.m. this morning for a meeting at like 8 a.m. And I, usually I'm actually really good at responding, but I was like really busy and I didn't. And the person's like, are you coming to this meeting? And I was like, no, you saw I had my calendar blocked off like I'm sorry, but you scheduled a meeting when I'm already busy. You know, I'm happy to like, if you record it, I'll watch the recording and we can catch up later, you know, like offering other options again. And so it's definitely something I think people also is like, if you do block off your calendar, sometimes people are like, oh, well, they're just like doing a task. So like I can schedule a meeting, but sort of, you know, having to push back on those boundaries as well as like, that doesn't mean it's like free for all meeting time. And I think that's something company culture wise, I need to work at my current company. We're very meeting heavy, very, very meeting heavy. And we're a lot of us are remote. And so I'm like, so that's something too. like, you know, you come into a very meeting heavy company culture and, you know, having to balance your calendar and like the millions of meetings and stuff like that. And it's not something that happens on day one. It takes some time. Is that something that was obvious to you when you were interviewing? No. And I actually asked a specific question about this. And actually, you know, now that I look back on it, I realized I made a mistake in that the person I asked wasn't a manager. It was an individual contributor. And so they're like, oh, no, like, not at all. Like, I don't have, you know, they're like, it's a good balance of like work time, meeting time. But I think if I would have asked that of like, say, the person who's my boss would have been a totally different answer. And let's talk about a shift that you made into and then out of recruitment, I believe this year, 
And I have listened to you talk about this and I got the sense that you tried your hand at recruitment because you felt that you weren't able to have as much impact as you would have liked doing design program management. And what I wanted to ask you was how did your expectations of recruitment, so working as a recruiter of designers, how did that end up aligning with the reality of that work? Yeah. So actually my intention to become a recruiter was like, not that I'm changing my career or anything like that. It was literally like a covert contextual analysis, honestly, or like, you know, when you like shadow someone doing their job, I'm blanking Mm -hmm. on what the term is. Contextual inquiry. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. So yeah. So that was actually my intention. Like I went into that job only intending to be there six months, but I didn't tell anyone that when I was interviewing or anything like I really just wanted to understand like I talk with so many people and I have my own struggles in the job search process and dealing with recruiters and all that stuff and so I want to know like what's really going on so this was my like let me sneak in there and see what it's like from the other side you know that was my intention yeah it was interesting And it was definitely an experience where there's things that people can tell you, but you don't get it until you actually experience it. The amount of work, like, sadly, you know, I was like, oh, I'm not going to be like every other recruiter. And I definitely think I did some things differently. But like, you know, you have someone breathing down your neck. This rule needs to be filled ASAP. Fill this, fill this, fill this. Like, I don't want to hear your like reasons of why you can't find the right person. Just shut up and fill this role like ASAP. And then you have like 12 people doing that at one time. You know, there's definitely pressure as a recruiter. Um, So that was one thing, like you hear it, but like actually experiencing it. But sadly, even as I say that, I don't have as much sympathy as I probably should. (laughs) Because like I was able to make it work and I'm like, well, if I could do it, other recruiters can do it. How much of that feeling is a result of the conditions that you were working under it sounded like almost like a very high pressure almost like a a hazing style of work where you either could do it or you couldn't there was no excuses I don't want to talk to you about your excuses just get the job done so how formative yeah how formative was that experience for you like did it squeeze some of the empathy out of you in one way no because I was like okay I get it but I was like I'm gonna make this work like I can do this. So like, for example, you know, people apply and I'm sure we've all heard like, oh, recruiter spends, you know, like five seconds on your resume or whatever, you know. And yeah, I had my boss breathing down my neck and I would look at people's resume. I looked at their LinkedIn. I Googled them like I did all this stuff. And if I said anything, she would be like, stop wasting your time. Don't do that. That's not necessary. So then I just don't tell her like that's one thing I've also learned in UX and stuff as well as um, and I remember actually thinking about this back in like 2003 and not really formulating my thought but um, sometimes telling people your process makes them trust you less because they see how much time they think it's going to take you know like if I go to you and you know, I'm like, okay, I want to do the full UX design process end to end. And it's going to be this and then this and then this, you know, as a higher up, you're going to be like, oh, it's going to take too long. Like, don't tell me that. And then I learned at like another job. I just didn't say anything. And I just did it without 
explaining it, but then giving the people results. So they were like, oh, wow, this this is great. Like they were really happy. Um, so that's something I also did in recruiting. I was like, OK, when I say what I'm doing, when they ask for like why something takes so long, then they're like fighting me. But then when I have really good results and I don't say what I'm doing, they're pretty happy. Yeah, Donna Spencer, who is uh, uh, an IA UX consultant from Australia who's been a previous guest on the show, one of the very first, actually, I think she was number five, wow. uh, episode five. She talks about this as well. She talks about don't don't talk to stakeholders about your process. And I think this is perhaps hopefully becoming fairly common a common way of thinking now in the way in which we present work to stakeholders is, you know, talk about the outcomes. Think mm-hmm. about what it is that they need to hear, which is not, you know, how wonderful our process was and how thorough it was and all the, you know, bumps along the way, but actually what, what should we learn and how is it going to help them to make a better decision? So I completely hear what you're saying there about the posture that you've adopted with that manager uh, so that you could actually get on and do the job and it didn't matter how you were doing it. It was just whether or not you were able to achieve the outcome that the manager was seeking. Yeah, I guess I was just, you know, I was saying I thought about this a long time ago um, just because I'm old school. But, you know, the original, like, I don't know if it was like the UX design process. Anyway, it's this like blue and yellow diagram with like this waterfall UX process. It's huge. And like if you showed that to someone... They'd be like, why would I hire UX? You guys are going to like take way too much time and money. And I remember um, discussing this with like a coworker and stuff like that. And then it was funny because I think just a year or two later is when like agile started being thrown about and stuff like that. And I just remember thinking like, yeah, if I was a manager and I saw that huge diagram, I'd be like, no, thank you. <laughs> Progressive disclosure is, is, is our friend here. Yeah. Uh, sp- speaking of disclosure... One of the the topics that makes people uncomfortable when they're going for a new position is money. Mm-hmm. Is it's a, it can be a very confronting topic for very many uh, reasons, each of them quite personal to the individual. Uh, yet money is something that is so, something that has a direct impact on our quality of life and being able to talk about money with confidence, being able to navigate those conversations is something that can actually help us to earn more of it. And I've heard you talk about this in the past. You've said, as a recruiter, I was told, don't tell the candidate what the pay range is. Ask them what they want to make and you just adjust the conversation based on what they say. So rather than disclosing the salary, and this is a hot topic at the moment, often jobs will not disclose the salary and they will leave that opaque on purpose. How do you feel about the approach that you were told to take as a recruiter when it comes to compensation? Oh, I didn't agree with it at all. And um, I actually remember being told that by my boss and I was like okay especially there was like one example I was actually super excited because one of my roles was for like a junior designer I was so excited I was just like yay you know a junior person gets a job I was like super excited and I was doing like the screening call with them and um you know I was told like don't give the salary and I think they said like, oh, this is what I'm looking for. And I straight out was like, ask for 20,000 more. Like I was just like, you know, straight up saying that, Um, (laughs) which, you know, if my boss would have found out, I might've been fired on the spot. (laughs) 
but that's um, interesting though right because I, I don't know how it works in the states so tell me if it works differently but here recruiters tend to earn a percentage of the total compensation package so there's almost an incentive for a recruiter to secure a position for a candidate with the highest compensation that they possibly can uh, yes, it's exactly the same here, at least where I worked. And it was this weird thing, though, where like, so part of it was like meeting with the hiring manager and like understanding their criteria and their budget and things like that. And that's where like that sort of salary range came from. But yeah, there was definitely the saying like, oh, yeah, don't tell the candidate that. But I would just be like straight up and like if they told me a number that I was like that doesn't even come close to what the hiring manager budgeted then I would you know I wouldn't tell them the exact number but I'd be like you can ask for more. Mm. What is it that you suspect that hiring managers or whoever is shrouding you know salary in secrecy what is it that they are seeking to achieve by doing that? When my boss asked me for headcount and I asked like okay what's my budget kind of thing they were saying like oh you can get like three people for like this amount and I'm like why do they all have to be seniors and like why do we all this let's let's spread the budget out more so we can have like a range of um levels of roles and I think that's another thing too is people are I don't know if it's the same outside the U.S., but it's like senior, senior, like everything senior. And then seniors are going to cost more money. But I'm like, well, let's hire someone not senior and then help them grow. And then, you know, that gives them opportunities and then we can hire more people. So, you know, basically my boss was like, oh, yeah, hire three seniors. And I'm like, how about I hire one senior and three like mid-levels or like a junior you know, and he's like, oh, whatever you want, like, you know, at the time when. Mm. Well, um, let's come to hiring juniors in, in a moment. Let's just stay on this uh, idea of or this topic of compensation for just a little longer. So what should someone who's going for a position do if they aren't able to get a straight answer about the compensation? Yeah, you should always ask, like, what's the budget for this position? And then what's the intended, like, growth rate as far as money for this position and then the other thing it's funny I tell people a lot and I know Amy's really behind this too there's lots of stuff to negotiate besides money you know like time off or something so like one thing you know like time off or all sorts of like different benefits and stuff you can negotiate and that's one thing I've been seeing some a lot of like people getting upset at like return to office and stuff like that for places which I get, I'm honestly, I'm like, no, don't make me go to the office. But that's something you can negotiate. You know, if you're, you know, interviewing at a company and they're like, oh, you have to come in the office, you know, three days a week or whatever, and you really like the company, you can be like, uh, how about I, instead of salary, let's negotiate me going into the office, you know? Yeah, let's follow this thread. I haven't forgotten about juniors, but let's just follow this thread a little further. So interviewing for a new role is a conversation, but it's a very special kind of conversation. And you mentioned the word negotiation, and that is mm-hmm. that that is what it is. It, it is a negotiation. Each side is attempting to, I suppose, maximize the uh, value or the outcome for themselves while still keeping each other happy. Well, that's the ideal. Now, if you're, you're, you're trying to negotiate salary and you mentioned other things like uh, where you work, those types of things come into the mix, benefits, other things like that. Uh, but you're going to have to bring this up at some point mm-hmm. and you're going to have to talk about the actual cash at some mm-hmm. point as well. So when, when that time comes 
first of all, when is that time? When is the most appropriate time if you don't have a salary disclosed for a role or a compensation mm-hmm. package disclosed? When is the most appropriate time to bring that up? And what should people do to prepare for that conversation in advance? Or what can they do to give themselves the best chance of having that conversation well? Yeah, yeah. So a couple of things, I would bring it up in the very beginning when you're talking with a recruiter, because I mean, you need to know, like, it's fair to both of you, like, if the salary range is nowhere within, you know, your means, like you wouldn't take it, like, don't waste everybody's time. So bringing up like that screening call with the recruiter, bring it up, you know, um, you don't need so to literally like, the recruiter calls you and you you say at an appropriate point in that conversation, hey, just so you know, I'm only going to accept roles that are in the realms of X and Y dollars. Yep. Mm-hmm. yep. Although, to your point, you actually shouldn't give out the number first. What you should do is ask the recruiter, well, what's the budget for this role? What's the minimum and the maximum or like how high would they go? And usually they'll give you a range. Most Most will. You know, and then you can be like, yeah, that doesn't fit within my budget or whatever. Or you could be like, well, what other things? And this is where you can bring up what other things can I negotiate? I actually know someone who recently um, was negotiating at um, J.P. Morgan Chase Bank and they like want people to go in, I think, three days a week or something. And they were able to negotiate like a fully remote work thing and it's funny because on the job it literally says you must go in three days a week like they called that out in the job description that this person was like i really want to work here i don't know why but they really did you know (laughs) they were like going for it but and you like back to my thing about these comments on linkedin like almost everything is negotiable so even if the office says like or the job description says like you must go into the office or like whatever that's probably negotiable do you foresee the power that has for a long time, and I'm speaking generally here, sat with tech workers to neg- negotiate benefits? Do you see that changing given the state of the tech industry at the moment? No, actually, I don't. I actually hope that crazy salaries go down because, I mean, I know we all like to talk about like, oh, if these tech CEOs didn't take so much money you know, then they wouldn't have had to lay off like thousands of workers. But I mean, it's not, I feel bad saying it's not just these tech CEOs, like there's other people that make like so much money. And I'm like, do you really need to make that much money? I mean, I could, I mean, I can go off on this whole thing about like capitalism and stuff like that. And like, is that really necessary? And so what I'm actually hoping is that with the state of things are that it's not that tech can't negotiate these things, that it actually runs into other industries that people in not tech roles can or not tech companies can negotiate other things. Mm-hmm. Now, you were talking there about someone going for a job at JP Morgan and Chase and being able to negotiate whether or not they came into the office three days a week. And I think you made a really important point, which I want to echo, which is that everything's negotiable. And that's almost like a dirty secret that no one really tells you when you're a an employee and it's true and that's something for people to think about when it comes time to interviewing at a next job you should really look at everything that's on offer and push back and ask for things that you want the worst that's going to happen is that they'll say no and you won't get the or you might not get the job but there will be another job out there i want to come back to what you're talking there about uh 
kind of work-life balance in, in many ways, like where do I get to work? And COVID has clearly changed the face of work for a lot of us, a lot of us who are privileged enough to work with computers on a daily basis. And many workplaces have embraced flexible working arrangements. They've embraced remote. Some are fully remote, but not everyone like JP Morgan and Chase that you mentioned, not everyone has. Like there is there is a, a pushback against this and some sectors or some companies are requiring people to return to the office and I think that's been fairly well publicised. So you have some questions that you suggest that people interviewing for jobs ask of the people that are interviewing them to help them to determine whether or not the culture or the way in which the company thinks about the employee-employer relationship is going to work for them. And one of them is what kind of work arrangements do people have? Now, that's quite a broad, probably intentionally so question. And I was wondering about this. So why did you use the term work arrangements specifically instead of being more direct and asking if it's a flexible working arrangement or remote friendly? Yeah, I guess in that case, I specifically want to leave it open-ended like that because um, maybe you want to just work four days a week or um, maybe you um, want to leave at two every day or like be logged off at two every day. And that's why I didn't want to like be specific, like remote or not remote or something. To, um, and I think that's one thing I, I tell a lot of my mentees as well is treat the interview like you would a one-on-one -on -one, like in-depth interview with each person you're talking to you know start with your broader questions and then you know just like you're doing with me like dig deeper on things and I think that's one thing I've you know had to learn myself also is like it can be scary interviewing and it's funny, I'm not scared of interviewing at all anymore. And I get lots of rejections, like, you know, I get tons of rejections. But I'm not scared of interviewing because I think about it like I'm interviewing someone for, you know, like I would at work. And it's funny, I have a really good friend. She's worked at the same company for 15 years years. And as anyone who can look at my LinkedIn, uh, that's not my style at all. <laughs> and like one of the reasons is, is just because she's scared of interviewing, like she's scared of going through that process. And yeah, I was absolutely terrified for like the first 15 years of my career. But it's also one of those things like, you know, the more you practice also, the less scary it is. And I was, or still am one of those people I'll interview for a job, even if I'm not looking just to like, you know, keep my skills up to date, see what's out there. I'm not looking to leave necessarily, but like, what is the interview process? Um, what is it like also so I can help mentor people and be like, yeah, I just had that exact same experience myself. You know, I've literally interviewed at jobs where they've asked the horrible, you know, design challenge homework or like whiteboarding. And like, I might not have even been looking for a job, but I wanted to go through that myself. So then I could give advice that hopefully was helpful to my mentees. And one of those pieces of advice that you've shared publicly before is, and I'll quote you again, you've said, remember, interviewing is a conversation, not an interrogation. When someone says, so the person interviewing you says, do you have any questions? Say yes, always say yes. So what does it communicate to the hiring manager if you have no questions for them? 
Yeah, actually, what's interesting, I didn't really think about it like this until I was a recruiter. But actually, when you say I don't have any questions, it also subtly says to me that you're not actually that interested in this job. Like, I didn't realize that and no one like out loud ever said that to me. But then when I was, quote unquote, on the other side and I would talk to candidates, I was like, oh, okay, if you're not excited or wanting to know more, then I'll just find someone else who is. Mm -hmm. So that's actually a tool that you can use if you're genuinely not interested and you don't want to be as direct as saying that you can kind of say it without saying it by saying I don't have any questions. Let's talk about role expectations then because these are things that are natural for people to have of many things in life, not just roles, relationships, other things. We Mm -hmm. build them up to be something in our mind and then we get to, if we're lucky, experience it and see if those things line up. Now, I know there's schools of thought out there that we should try and have no expectations, therefore we'll have no disappointment, but that's just, well, quite frankly, that's not very human. So one of the things that you have suggested here or a question that you've suggested that people can ask to understand what the expectations will, that will be upon them if they are successful and get the job is what are some of the things that new designers or if it's a researcher, researchers could do in their first 30 days to set them up for success? So what should a good answer what should the candidate, the person going for the job, be listening for? What should it, what does a good answer to this question look like or sound like? Yeah, it's actually really funny because I, I ask that question myself when I'm interviewing. I actually haven't gotten very good answers, but like as a new hire, I like the things I do, I would suggest I do a listening tour of every team that I work directly with. So like, for example, Um, I started this new job. I've been there six weeks and I've completed a listening tour with every product manager, with every every front end and full stack engineer I work with. I'm currently starting a listening tour with all our customer support people. And what's a listening tour? Tell me about that. I don't know. I don't know what that is. Oh, okay. Um, Yeah, I, I don't know if it's like an official term. I think I heard it from... I don't know, now it's my turn. I don't know if I'm going to pronounce her name right. Leah Bully in UX Team of One. Definitely recommend that book. Um, but yeah, it's definitely a way just to like build um, relationships and understanding. And it's something I've done for many years, like every new job. And um, it's just sort of a meet and greet, like half an hour, 45 minutes, one-on-one I find easier where you just like get to know someone. Like I'll send a little agenda. Like I've even... Um, sent mentees like templates of things I use Um, you know just like hey I'm a new ex on the team I wanted to know you know what your day-to-day like is in your process and then in these meetings I also you know I'm like how can I help you in your job you know kind of what do people usually say to you is there any sort of theme in terms of response when you ask them that question actually almost everyone's usually shocked that like I'm a new person offering to help you. And I'm like, yeah, of course. And and I'll usually tie it back to like, you know, I want to improve your relationship with like design or like, you know, whatever we're building or something like that is like, you know, tying it back to something that can also benefit them. But then it also helps me get to understand them better and like what's important to them. And so like just for an example, like I just said, I finished talking to a lot of engineers I had my thoughts going in of like one thing that would really help is like a design system. But I didn't mention that at all until after I heard from the engineers. And I'm like, what could help you? 
And they're like, well, you can't code. So like, you can't help me, but like, God, I hate like, you know, um, having a copy and paste code from different places and stuff like that. And like, I was like, well, actually I can help you. And then, you know, explaining how I can help and stuff like that. So that's, that's just an example. So that's one thing I do. Um, so I think, you know, that was a very long winded, not real answer to your question, but what I'd want to hear from someone, if I was an interviewee or candidate asking that question is I want you to take time to understand the organization and its goals and its business strategy and like why it exists in the market and build relationships. I want to hear those words, build relationships. And I've never heard that from anyone when I've interviewed, but that's what I want to hear. It's uh, somewhat telling perhaps of the, the state of things. Uh, speaking of the state of things, Something else that's often useful for people to understand before they start in a role or while they're interviewing is what is actually going on. And I thought that your question here was an excellent one because it actually gets at this uh, quite directly and also indirectly. There's something really nice about this question. I better read the question so people can actually understand what that is. The question is, what are the most pressing projects that need to be addressed? So how does knowing what those things are actually help the person who's applying for the job there? What is it that they're listening for there? How are they using that answer to try and help them work out whether this is somewhere that they want to work? Uh, two things, actually. One is, you know, whoever's answering that, you know, tell you whatever's top of mind to them. And then, you know, you can be like, uh, do I want to work on that? Do I want to spend my energy on that? And you can be like, you know, mentally, yes or no, and continue the process from there. And then the other thing is sort of understanding what the company values. So for example, that's one reason I took this current job is I asked that question myself of every person I talked to. Almost everyone said, we need help showing our value to our customers. I don't know if I'm going to say this right because I don't, it's been a while. I don't know if I remember it exactly, but they're like, we feel that design can help elevate our value or something to our customers or something like that. And then I dug in a little more deeper about that, but um, that was something that was like really nice to hear, you know, they, they knew they don't have a design department, they don't have designers, but they knew it was important and they cared about it. And it was like a top priority for every single person I talked to. I think I like this question because you can ask it in a way that it pierces the pretense that interview situations can set up where everyone's there with their happy smiling face, you know, trying to put their best foot forward and do the song and dance and everything is good. You know, there's nothing, there's nothing sort of no fires burning here. It's a great place to work, all that sort of thing. And I feel like you can really get to what's actually going on behind the scenes if you position and press this question in, in the right way at the right time with the right people. It's a, it's a, it's a really, really, really good question. Um, something else that I felt was a good question to ask that you had suggested, and that's when people are trying to understand the culture, you know, the meeting mm -hmm. culture we touched on earlier, you know, mm -hmm. like how, how, how does this place actually work? Because like I just said, uh, people are putting up, uh, putting forward their 
best their best foot in an interview yeah. situation, and uh, it's it's actually quite a can be quite a false uh, situation. So these questions that you're suggesting are really neat because they help people to try and actually uncover what's going on. And the question is, what is the culture of when and how people like to give and receive feedback? So you're trying to dig into here. Uh, I suppose the what the lines of communication look like between team members and perhaps between the team members and direct managers. So what is it that people should be listening for? You know, when they ask a question like, "What is the culture of when and how people like to give and receive feedback?" Yeah, so definitely, you know, things to listen for are everyone here is open to feedback and. You will hear that a lot to your earlier point of like, oh, we want to all be happy and, you know, like show the best. So it's like, of course, we all want to receive back, receive feedback and we all want to grow. But then you take that to the next level and be like, can you tell me the last time you gave feedback and how it was received? So with like a lot of these questions, it is sort of high level. I mean, like I said, it's just our UX interview process. It's high level. And yeah, you'll probably get the nice happy answer to start, but then dig into specifics, you know, like, you know, what I just said, or another one is like, another one related that I ask is like, how is feedback shared um, to a team versus an individual? Or, you know, how is positive feedback shared versus negative feedback? And then like one thing I actually like at my current company, and they didn't have this when I started, they just rolled it out a week ago, is now in everyone's Slack profile, it says how I like to receive feedback. And it's something that everybody fills out. So I can see it when I go over everyone's profile. Has anyone ever said I don't like to receive feedback? I haven't seen one yet. Um, (laughs) Although I did appreciate some people are funny and like, um, one person said, like, I prefer my feedback by carrier pigeon, um, <laughs> like, you know, things like that, you know, so I don't know if I'm supposed to take that as just funny and um, take forever to give you feedback or something, but, you know. Um, well, Christi- so- Christina Vodka, who's been on the show recently, she has some great wisdom to share here about the benefits of fast feedback and how the most functional teams, and I don't mean cross-functional, I mean just teams that actually work well together, often have this culture of being able to share feedback frankly and fast with one another because there's an understanding that speed of feedback and the gift of feedback is best given as close to the moment as possible of the time where the situation that required feedback arose because Mm -hmm. with time, distance and time in between that and when you give the feedback there's a whole bunch of uh, I suppose value that's lost and the lack of immediacy to address that with someone together and you're actually not doing them a service by delaying giving that feedback of course there's lots of nuance there and everyone's teams are different and the personalities within those teams are different Um, but if um, if you're listening and you want to tap into a bit more on that topic then check out that episode with Christina Christina Vodka can I add Uh, something to that yeah 100% Yeah, so I'm a big fan of Christina's, and that is actually from her book, The Team That Managed Itself, which is one of my favorite books, (laughs) or, you know, I don't know if my favorite books, it's, it's up there in my top industry reading, I should say, it's, it's one I've really pulled a lot of stuff from for how I manage and how I work with people is that book, honestly. Yeah, it's wonderful. And she's a, she's a real, a real leading 
uh, light as far as collaboration and, as you'll know, also from uh, in terms of OKRs and other yeah. things. She's, she's very on point. It's definitely worthwhile checking out. Now, here's an excellent question. And the question is, what makes you proud to work at this company? Why is it important to understand what makes potential colleagues proud of the company that you're applying for a job at? Yeah, I think what's interesting is sometimes actually people will be stumped with that question. And you can also think of it as a little in reverse is like you as a candidate getting that question. Why do you want to work here? It's actually you asking that question of the person interviewing you in a different way. And so just like you might sometimes be like, uh, I want to work here because I need a job and I need a paycheck or something like that, you know, hearing how they answer is like, is it just some pat answer of like, oh, this is what I should say? Or are they actually excited and enthusiastic with their answer? And once again, that's something I got from every person that I talked to in my current place is the enthusiasm of like, making a change in the insurance industry, which I must admit, when I first heard about this job, I was like, oh, so boring, like (laughs) insurance. But then I actually asked that question of every person and like the answers I got were so eye opening that I was like, I want to work here, too. How do you know whether someone's just giving you a bullshit answer? So I feel like that can be a little hard sometimes depending on your skill at reading people. And it's funny, I'm, I'm in UX design and I'm a sensitive person, but I must admit, sometimes I struggle with reading people. I don't know if I want to use our trending thing of sometimes, you know, I think we all have some kind of, I don't know, not neurological, but, you know, some kind of neurodiversity traits or something, you know, it's a spectrum. So I definitely miss some cues myself sometimes. Um, But in general, like looking at it from a like, if everything was perfect is you want to look at like their enthusiasm, and that they're not just delivering this like straight, like no emotion kind of answer. And once again, just like I think the thread through this entire conversation is if it seemed like it was just this pat answer, ask for details of like, can you give me an example of like the last time, you know, someone gave you kudos at work or something or the last time you were excited to work on a project and what that was like or something like that. So whatever they say to you, find a bridge with that to then dig deeper into the substance of what they've communicated. Yes, exactly. Now, I I promised we'd come back to hiring (laughs) junior designers, and I want to do that, but I want to ask one more question while we're on this particular track, which is you've suggested that when people finish their interview, and I'll quote you again now, you've, you've suggested that they say something to the effect of, I enjoyed our conversation and learning more about you and the team. After getting to know me a little better, what reservations do you have about me being a fit for this role? So why are you inviting people to invite doubt into their fit into this hiring conversation? Yeah, it's actually so that if those, you know, if they have doubts and they say you can address them right then, it's just like you were saying about feedback from Christina earlier. It's the same thing, like that immediacy of instead of them going back and like talking with their colleagues, like, oh, I didn't think Julia was like a good fit because of X, Y and Z. If she that person says it directly, you can be like, oh, well, let me tell you. Blah, blah, blah. And I use that question a lot myself. And I must admit, I have had sometimes where the interviewer will just be like, oh, I can't really discuss that with you. Oh, really? Yeah. You you can't discuss me with me? Yeah. 
Okay. Yeah. What did you say? I was like, I thought we were having a conversation if I was a good fit for this role. And they're like, well, I'm not allowed to have my own opinions until I discuss it with the team. I don't know if I'm wording that quite right, but like they thought it would be a bias or something. Mm. And I was like, okay. Um, did you get the job? I did not. But I don't know. Maybe that was a good thing. Probably. Probably <laughs> in that case. Yeah, it's interesting. There's a there's a book called Never Split the Difference by Chris yes. Boss. Yeah? Yes. Are you familiar with it? And he, yep. he's, for people that don't know, he's a former FBI terrorist and hostage negotiator. So he's been in some fairly intense conversations with, with people uh, that don't necessarily want to do what he wants them to do. <laughs> and he talks about the deference that sometimes people will, will, will push off onto others in terms of decision-making ability that, oh, no, I can't, I can't answer that question because I've got to go back and, you know, discuss it with my team, which can, and again, you know, read the book for yourself and make your own mind up people, but can suggest that they are actually the people that have the power to make that decision and they've already made it. They just don't want to tell you that they've made that decision. Uh, it's a way of them saving face and not having to address the, the issue. Yeah. And it's funny you mentioned that because I was actually going to mention that book earlier when we were talking about like negotiating salary and stuff. Like I said, honestly, I, I suck at it for myself, but I do try and give really good or I try to give good advice on that. But that advice is coming from that book because I read that book and that's where my advice is coming from. Yeah, really worth worth having a look. In fact, there are some videos of Chris, I think, doing role plays with people, um, mm -hmm. in, in particular on in salary negotiations, which are just useful information, like another data point. Not necessarily going to work for everyone, but it's uh, it's something worthwhile checking out. Now, junior designers, let's talk about hiring junior designers. So that is something that there's a fairly common, funny but not funny train of thought in the industry about how entry-level designers are often required to have at least a couple of years experience before we'll even let them in the door. So they already have to have two years of experience before we'll actually consider them for a job. So when you were recruiting, and you mentioned this earlier, uh, you mentioned that you had a junior design position come up and you were really excited about it. But I understand there was a flip side to that, and that flip side was that you had over 500 applications for the specific position, and that came in in over 24 hours, right? So that's a very short space of time, a lot of, lot of people to um, assess and work out whether or not you're going to shortlist them. And you also said about this, and I'll just quote the very end, um, the end part here. You said design mostly wants senior people. It's frustrating. Why do hiring managers mostly want seniors? Yeah, and it, it really became like crystal clear to me this past couple of weeks at my current job, and that was sort of that LinkedIn post you were referring to earlier, is I don't have time to even think about it. I can't have someone asking me questions and I hate that so much. It's so against my nature. And it's just like, I feel like, you know, it's honestly another way of saying like, I'm too busy. I shouldn't be managing a team. I just need someone to come in and do the work. You know, some companies will be like, okay, then let's just hire contractors where other people are like, no, we need to have full-time team members so they can like be part of our culture and stuff. But it's the same idea of like, we don't have time is usually the biggest thing. Like we're on fire. Someone needs to just come in and like do the work and I don't have time to explain things. And I hate that so much. I really do. Like you should always make time 
but like I am in this situation right now where I am drowning. And what's funny though, as I talk about this is it's funny, like if I was left to my own devices and someone's like, you need to do these things, I'd be like, okay. But the reason in my case why I'm drowning is I came up with like a list of priorities of what I think I need to focus on. But then I'm hearing different things from like my boss and then the CEO and then like other people, they're all conflicting. And so if I could just go like, these are my priorities, this is what I'm working on, I could deal with it and I'd be fine hiring not a senior person. But because of all the conflicting priorities and I haven't been able to get alignment yet, I think it's possible. I, you I need to have... you need to buy them radical focus, which is Christi- <laughs> Christina Vodka's book, and just subtly <laughs> slip it underneath their door. And not not that you're working in a physical office, so that might be a bit difficult. Maybe you can send them it via via ebook. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's funny because I've read that book too, and so that's why I also get frustrated. Because like honestly, sometimes like reading and like knowing this stuff, I feel like as a UX designer makes my job harder because I've read all these books of the way things should be, and I feel like going back to junior designers, boot camps teach this a lot too. It's like the way things should be, but real life is absolutely nothing like this at all. Like these books are awesome, but like, it's not like, this. <laughs> it's not like what it's you Yeah. Mm. It's that classic, that drawing we've all seen like, oh, there's the double diamond process. And then it's just a squiggle for the actual process. <laughs> yeah. So honestly, senior designers, I think it's just like, someone saying, I don't have time to mentor. So if we continue to do this, if we continue to weight our teams towards seniors, you know, people like us, where does this road lead us to as a field? I think utter disaster, honestly, but um, to get more detailed is, God, I feel like I could say so many things. I guess also just thinking, one thing I've noticed interesting is because I have been in the industry a long time and a lot of my ideas come from when I started in the industry and like how things were then. But I really try and make an effort to be like, okay, there's like new trends or like new things, you know, and stuff like that. But if we're all seniors, I think we all, it's a human condition. We have a bias to like our original learnings. And if it's all seniors, we're going to like get stuck and we're not going to innovate and grow. We need new people to grow and innovate And not like seniors can't come up with fresh or innovative ideas, but it's just like this unbiased thinking or this outside thinking. This is one comment I use a lot at work is like, I'm coming in with a fresh perspective. I say this a lot in meetings. Like a lot of you have been here for over a year or two years. Like this is the perspective of someone who's been here a month. And this is what I see. And I think it's the same in our industry, you know. Um, If we don't have new people coming in, we're going to stagnate. And my most hated phrase is like, well, that's the way we've always done things. I hate that at a company. I hate that, hate that, hate that. I will leave in a second if I hear that phrase. (laughs) Um, What does that say to you? If if you hear that, what what does that, what are they actually saying? That um, we're not open to change or to trying something different. I wonder if what I'm going to ask you next, I wonder if this is related in some way to that, to an unwillingness to change or to the the present situation that hiring managers find themselves in, in terms of being really short on time because of the conditions that they're operating in. 
And this is from a conversation that you had with Laura Klein, who's also been a previous guest on Brave UX, on her new podcast, which is called What is Wrong with Hiring? And one of the things you said there was there's a bit of a disconnect between what the hiring managers want and what is out there in terms of skills. What is the nature of that disconnect and where has it come from? Yeah, I think part of it is that, you know, the hiring managers are like, oh, I want these hard skills or something like that. And boot camps are teaching them in a very recipe type of format. But then, you know, when they go to interview someone, and I I saw this a lot too, is like, I'm hearing answers in a very like, well, I would do this, but then if I give you some kind of scenario that doesn't fit into that, they can't, you can't respond. And so it's a two-way street where like the hiring managers are like, I need you to like think on your feet or like, you know, deal with ambiguity, which we see like in every job description. But then the people coming in are like, I don't know what that, like what you want me to say, like the bootcamp didn't tell me what to say or what to do in this situation. That's chilling. That's sending chills down my spine. So what you're saying is that candidates that you're seeing don't have the critical thinking skills to deal with the questions that are being posed to them and come up with an an answer that isn't part of some sort of script or conditioning that they've experienced. Yeah. And I feel really bad because, you know, sort of going back to our earlier thing about quote unquote, everything might be negotiable to a certain extent at a job. When you see those jobs that say like, oh, two years or five years experience or whatever, that's negotiable too, you know, like if you have really good answers or you're able to get that interview, you can talk your way past that requirement or show your skills beyond that requirement. And this is where I hate using that term, but those soft skills or dealing with ambiguity and all those like buzzwords we throw out will get you past that stupid two, five year requirement. Yeah. I mean, if you've been doing design badly for five years, you're still a bad designer. Exactly. I understand, I understand why uh, there is a time time ranges put on to particular roles. Like I understand that it's you know not as clear cut as that. And that, you know, the uh, one of the follies of my youth was thinking I knew more than I actually did. And you can only learn that that's oh. not the case in retrospect. So there's all of that going on and wrapped up here. Uh, but one of the things that you've also talked about in terms of hiring managers wanting to see from candidates, which perhaps is quite difficult for juniors, maybe getting to the critical thinking aspect we were touching on earlier, is you've said that often hiring managers are talking in terms of deliverables and tools and that managers also want to see on top of deliverables and tools the outcomes that have been achieved as a result of the work that's been done. So these are almost like there's a very... A functional requirement for the role, you know, if you've got experience with Figma or whatever it is, which is hot right now. And then on the other hand, there's this, hey, um, you need to be able to tell a narrative of how your work actually helped your team and your company achieve its goals. Yep. And this is something that I can understand why, you know, having hired people in the past, you want to understand how their contribution has actually made a difference. But given the often complex and collaborative nature of our work, you know, we're we're working in often large teams with heaps of different expertise in the room to overcome serious and significant and complex challenges. How can we most effectively and truthfully demonstrate that impact through the stories we tell about the outcomes? 
Yeah, I think one thing to keep in mind, and I was actually just telling this to, I don't know, they're not a mentee. I don't, don't want to like give too much away, but they're in a unique situation where they've been working at a company, a big, a big like company for over five years, but not a single thing they've worked on has shipped. So I know we hear this a lot with juniors, like show your impact, or I want to know how that improved things. And so keep in mind that that impact or those outcomes you're just talking about doesn't always have to be like, oh, you know, it made X amount of money or like whatever. Um, you can also talk about the impact of like how you collaborated and now the team is a better functioning team. Like it doesn't have to be like this thing you designed and then shipped made changes. It's like, how did other things you did like team function or evangelizing UX or something? And like, I'm a big fan for juniors. Your portfolio doesn't always have to be like UX case studies, you know, especially, you know, I'm getting a lot more people lately who are coming from like medical fields and wanting to be in UX. Like, oh, my God, you must have so many amazing stories. Like, think about it more like telling a story of how you solved a problem in your previous career. Don't feel stuck that you have to do this like UX case study that you see all over the Internet. That's the other thing. Oh, my God, portfolios are looking so cookie cutter. And like, I literally met with someone a couple months ago now. And so it's, it's so bad now that I can look at someone's portfolio and be like, oh, you went to this boot camp, you went to that boot camp. Like I can tell immediately where you went based on your case studies without even knowing anything about you. But this person's portfolio, I looked at one case study and I was like, oh, they went to X boot camp. And then I looked at another one. I'm like, oh, wait, maybe they went to a different boot camp. And I went to the third one. I was like, oh, I'm confused. And we were like reviewing their portfolio together online. So I asked and they're like, oh, I didn't go to a boot camp. I just copied the way case studies were laid out on what I saw on the Internet. But so someone who self-studied copied the style of things they saw on the Internet were all boot camp portfolios. And then I literally thought they went to like three different boot camps. Like think about that for like how we're seeing <laughs> recipes. Yeah. And that approach it communicates something about that person's potential approach to the work when, when they get in there. Uh, I, I feel like I'm going to use the word brave here. I feel like there's room and there's appetite for people when they're going for jobs to be a little brave and draw on previous career experiences if it's, if it's been outside of UX, like you were saying, and bridge those into how that actually positions them you know, to be suitable for whatever the role is that they are going for. There's these these areas of differentiation or, or, or things that make you special that are unique to you that you can introduce into your portfolio in such a way that it can connect with a human on the other side that's, you know, probably a bit tired of sifting through 400 of the, the same samey kind of looking things. Now, I just want to go into portfolios just a little bit more mm. before we bring our conversation down to a close. And... While you were talking to Laura, you also um, mentioned something that I heard and I thought, wow, this is something that we need to amplify here. And that was, you said people who don't have a portfolio or if it's password protected are at the bottom of the recruiters list. So there's heaps in there and please take this where you need to. But I also wanted to follow up 
on that and say that after you said that, Laura suggested that that requirement for a portfolio is quite tough on people who aren't visual designers, you know, researchers, for example, uh, or UXs that don't do visual design, uh, or where previous work is under NDA or has been a team effort and it's hard to separate exactly uh, whose contribution resulted in, you know, a specific outcome. So is it unfair of hiring managers to want to see evidence of previous work in a portfolio format? Um, that was unfair. I mean, I guess I want to see something. But once again, taking it back to like what we were talking about earlier, I think people are getting scared. Like it has to be this like typical UX portfolio. I actually saw someone, this was years ago, and I thought it would be more happened. They did their portfolio, quote unquote, sorry, on Medium. Um, it was just a collection of articles. Like, let's say you are coming from another career and you're like, well, I don't know, like all the UX deliverables with UX process. I don't like just show me like your thought process and then diagrams help. Like, you know, yeah, maybe you're not a visual designer. That's fine. I want to see like I thought step A, step B, step C. And then I thought this scenario and I thought, what if this happened? I want to see that critical thinking and you can make a sketch on a napkin for that. Like, that's what I want to see. I don't care about, like, pretty, flashy colors. And that's for me, but I know not all hiring managers are like that. But when I say portfolio, that's what I mean is, like, show me your thought process. That's a really key distinction. And just a reminder, if you've got your portfolio, or if you don't have a portfolio, get something that you've called portfolio. It doesn't have to look like a cookie cutter one. And if it's password protected, take the password off. You don't want to be at the bottom of those recruiters lists if they can't actually get to and have a look at what it is that you've done previously. So Julia, when it comes to recruitment, you've seen you spent your six months peeking behind that curtain, you know, working in the recruitment trenches and really trying to understand what's actually going on there. As my final question for you, what's your biggest insight into recruitment's dark arts? You know, the one that you feel is important for designers to know when they're applying for jobs and what do they need to understand or do that's going to give them the best chance of landing their dream job? Um, I guess I actually have two answers to that. The first part is like, I know you've probably heard this, but like the whole recruiting process itself is a total mess. I mean, all sort of thing, like everywhere does it a different way. There's no standardizations. I mean, we have more standardizations in UX than they do in the recruiting industry. Like that's how all over the place it is. And then, you know, there's so many different tools and, you know, which we also have. But then one thing also I saw a lot and getting a job as a recruiter is like, I'm sorry, it's a total cakewalk. Like, oh my God, I can't believe how easy it was. <laughs> like it was a little scary. And like, I still like, even when I was there, they hired some other people, they hire people like right out of school. Like I felt like they'd almost quote unquote hire almost anyone. So just sort of flip that around as like, this person may have zero understanding of what you do or like anything at all they have maybe no standardized process they know nothing and so I know you know you've probably heard this as an applicant a million times but like really making it easy as possible for them slow speak slowly use plain English yes yes 
And like, that's our thing is like, they literally, you know, have a checklist of like, are there wireframes? Are there mockups? And like, but they don't like, they're just sitting there like, you know, not checking things off a list or something like that when they're reviewing your portfolio. But if you can just, you know, sort of explain, but not take too long of like what you did and what you were thinking, that helps a lot too. Really good advice. And thank you, Julia. This has been a really useful and practical conversation. I feel there's heaps of things in here for people to take away, to apply, and also to have a think about. Thank you for being so generous with your stories and insights today. Thank you so much for having me, Brendan. I'm really, really honored to be on this podcast. And a little shout out to Brendan. Um, I've done quite a I don't know, quite a few. I've done a lot of different podcasts. I don't know if I can say that quite. But anyway, Brendan's been my most favorite podcast to be on. He's so organized, so prepared, so engaging, asks really good questions. I mean, if anyone's like, I'm not sure if I should do a podcast, check out Brendan and he will give you an amazing experience. Oh, you're very kind and it's definitely been my pleasure. Thank you, Julia. And Julia, if people want to connect with you and find out a bit more about what you're up to, what's the best way for them to do that? I'm on LinkedIn more than I should be, but please send me a, if you send me a connection request, please include a note. I do not accept connection requests without a note. Very important. Very important. Thanks, Julia. And to everyone who's tuned in, it's been great having you here with us as well. Everything that we've covered will be in the show notes, including where you can find Julia and detailed chapter notes. Check those out on YouTube. They've actually got time codes where you can hop to various uh, points in the conversation. Uh, If you enjoyed the show, And you want to hear more conversations like this, great conversations with world-class leaders in UX, design, and product management, then don't forget to leave a review on the podcast if that's possible, wherever or however you are listening to this. Subscribe so it turns up to you regularly. And tell someone else, if there's someone that you felt listening to this today that would get value from these types of conversations, then please pass the podcast along to them. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on LinkedIn. Just search for Brendan Jarvis and I'll pop up. There's also a link to my profile. If that doesn't happen or you're having trouble finding me, there's a link to my profile at the bottom of the show notes. Or you can head on over to my website, which is thespaceinbetween.co.nz. That's thespaceinbetween.co.nz. And until next time, keep being brave. Hey, hey.